Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Jagannath Padmanabhan. Uh, he's a PhD and a postdoctoral research fellow in Dr. Jeffrey Gertner's laboratory in the Department of Surgery at Stanford University. Uh, he's a bioengineer by training, PhD from Yale University in 2016. And we've been talking about his research interests, uh, which deal with the interface of bioengineering, surgery, and data science, and looking at the role of uh, mechanotransduction in biomedical implant rejection, which we'll get into. So, uh, Jagan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, before we yeah. start, I would like to say that um, I've listened to many episodes of the podcast series, and uh, I've really enjoyed them. Uh, very informative. So, uh, congratulations to you and your team for putting together a good show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, tell me about your your current research. Let's, you know, what is your focus right now, and let's you know, boil it down to a simple version of it, and then we'll we'll start getting into questions about it. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, as you just said, I'm, I work as a postdoctoral research fellow in plastic surgery here at Stanford. Um, so my research interests are basically um, focused on biomaterial tissue interactions and novel biomaterial development. Um, as you said, uh, my previous graduate studies have been at Cornell and Yale University. So for the past um, almost 10 years now, I've been doing interdisciplinary biomedical research uh, focused on how, you know, uh, our body reacts to biomedical devices, um, and especially in particular, the role of mechanical forces in how the biomedical device rejection uh, happens. So what happens right now? What, what kind of biomedical devices, like pacemakers or... Artificial. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, um, as uh, you know, you know, there's a whole variety of biomedical devices uh, that we use in surgery today, uh, taking from pacemakers and cardiovascular medicine to uh, breast implants in plastic surgery uh, to catheters uh, for chemotherapy and so on. Uh, what I do is I uh, so I started at Stanford about two years ago, and um, I started this multidisciplinary collaboration. Uh, with plastic, so different departments within uh, surgery. Uh, so with plastic surgery, cardiovascular medicine, pediatric surgery, and neurosurgery to collect different kinds of implants that are used uh, in patients. And when they're taken out due to a variety of reasons, I collaborate with the surgeons to get those biomedical implants. And I study, you know, what kind of cells and proteins are there on the implant uh, using uh, some of the new technologies that are out there. For example, uh, single-cell sequencing technology. So we get an idea of what kind of cells and what kind of proteins are involved in the biomedical device rejection process. And that gives us new targets to go after uh, when we think of therapies to increase the lifespan of these uh, these devices. As you might know, um, every artificial material known to man uh, is sooner or later rejected by the human body. So we understand, we want to understand how this rejection process happens and how we want to evade uh, the rejection process. So there's no implant that anyone's had where they, that they accepted long-term? They always reject it over, over a period of time? Uh, there's actually a uh, sort of, well, so the, the, the way the rejection process happens is this process called foreign body reaction. 
Um, it's literally what it sounds like. Uh, you know, whenever you introduce a foreign body into the human body, the human body reacts in a certain way. Um, it deposits certain proteins. There are certain inflammatory cells. Um, eventually, there comes fibroblasts, uh, which produce a lot of collagen. And this collagenous, it forms like a capsule around the implant. And uh, once that, that is the body's way of, um, you know, isolating that foreign body from the rest of your body. And uh, this is the body's defense mechanism. But when it comes to biomedical implants, uh, this is not such a good thing because we want the biomedical implant to, you know, not be isolated from the body and interact with the body. There are certain kinds of implants that would last longer than others. Uh, but if basically all the material, artificial materials that we know elicit this foreign body reaction to a greater or lesser extent. Well, what happens over time? Does a layer of material build up over an implant to where it becomes non-functional or how does it work? Yeah, so uh, it uh, works differently in different implants. For example, in breast implants, which is the largest number of implants uh, in plastic surgery, uh, one of the things that happens is when the capsule layer forms, it can actually contract the implant itself. So, you know, the breast implant can get deformed, it can cause pain, uh, and it'll basically stop functioning. So there's mechanical failure of the implant. Uh, in other things, like, for example, um, the new biomedical implants that everyone's working towards are uh, these biosensors, in v for example, in vivo continuous glucose monitors. And uh, these implants, um, the foreign body reaction is even more of a problem because even a small capsule layer that forms uh, is going to change the readings of the blood glucose that you're trying to read. Right, because once there's a capsule, there's less amount of interstitial fluid or blood that can get to the implant, and hence your readings go down. In fact, uh, the average lifespan uh, would be, you know, a month or two months for the commercially available in vivo sensors. So we are able to figure out a way how to stop this foreign body reaction, or how to stop this rejection process and increase the lifespan of these devices. Uh, that would be um, a tremendous help for uh, a lot of patients millions of them in the U.S. alone. So what's the pathway you think that would stop the rejection or slow it down to where it could be for you know, a lot longer? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, there's a you know, few different ways uh, we can get at it, uh, which is why uh, my research interests lie at this intersection of bioengineering, uh, surgery, and data science. Um, one of the things we can do is, and one of the things we've been understanding more and more now, is the role of mechanical force in biomedical implant rejection. Um, uh, Dr. Jeff Gertner, who is uh, my advisor here at Stanford, uh, had shown that mechanical force plays a big role in wound healing, which is a very related process, because when you implant a biomedical device, you're essentially creating a wound and then placing a device inside of that wound. Um, and what we've realized is when there is an increase in mechanical force, uh, the, the, you know, there is fibrotic processes that get activated and inflammatory processes that get activated. And the same things happen in uh, biomedical device rejection. And uh, so that would be one area to focus on. Like one is to understand how mechanical force accelerates um, device rejection and also how uh, we can you know, come up with therapies to stop it. Uh, the other angle is to really understand what's going on with the cells because Obviously, we've studied foreign body reaction for many, many years, and uh, you know, there's some statistic that says only two-thirds of the research in, at the basic science level ever gets translated to uh, the clinical uh, level, and even those haven't found too much success. 
Uh, and that's because uh, to increase the lifespan beyond uh, what we have currently. And that's uh, because the identity of these cells that we know of, for example, uh, we know that macrophages and fibroblasts are involved in this uh, foreign body reaction. But now uh, with newer technologies uh, like single cell sequencing and such and data science technologies, what we're realizing is that these cells that we talk about like fibroblasts and macrophages, these aren't really one cell type. There's actually multiple cell types within them, transcriptionally active subtypes of cells, uh, you know, one subgroup of cells which could really be doing 90% uh, of the damage. So now with these data science uh, techniques, we're able to isolate, okay, which is the subgroup of cells that's really causing the damage? And then we can do some drug delivery-based techniques to target that specific subset of cells. And this is all on the biological side. Uh, during my grad school work, we worked I, I, on I, I, some... I, 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 oh, please. One yeah. Thing. yeah, we're jumping yeah. around to a lot of topics. I just want to go a little bit slower. Um, <laughs> you said that mechanical movement of an implant itself causes an immune response or a scarring response? Like, Correct. Have you looked Correct. at um, when people have a, a bone spur or something mechanical but native to their body on the inside, you know, torn cartilage, whatever it is, that creates some kind of mechanical stress and how the body reacts to that? Have you looked there for clues as to why uh, an implant would cause, you know, similar effects? Yeah, um, maybe I should start with what happens in wound healing, and that'll give us a nice segue into what happens during implants, because it's a sort of newer idea, uh, and uh, there's an animal model that I'm developing. So in wound healing, what happens is that, um, let's say there is a certain wound that is created due to, a, let's say, a surgical scar or some kind of trauma, an accident or something, right? So when the wound heals, uh, when people started studying them in mice, um, mouse wounds heal you know, much better than human wounds. And for a long time, we didn't understand why that happened. Uh, later, people realized that, you know, mouse skin has certain different properties, there's an extra muscle layer, uh, but it all came down to the fact that when you create a wound in a mouse and the wound heals, the forces that the mouse skin um, uh, is experiencing is very different from the forces that the human skin and human environment is experiencing. As you know, the skin itself is under tension all the time. Uh, so, and when people uh, did these experiments where in mice you would create a wound and as the wound is healing, you would apply, you know, human levels of force, you would create a human-like scar formation. Uh, so what I'm doing currently is developing a new animal model uh, because, so what, I mean, mouse is obviously, uh, you know, the preferred model to study uh, any disease model, including uh, biomedical device uh, processes. Um, and uh, what we realized is that the forces that a biomedical device faces in the subcutaneous pocket in a mouse is very different from the forces that uh, a device faces in humans. And uh, now we've developed a way to, um, you know, apply extra forces in the mouse. And then the reaction that the device gets in the mouse is more similar to what happens in the humans. So this is an indirect way of getting at the fact that, oh, the application of high mechanical forces, high mechanical environment uh, around the biomedical uh, implant is part of the reason uh, of why these inflammatory and fibrotic process or the scar forming process uh, really gets activated. Hmm. Okay. So what does that tell you to do with implants? Do they have to be a certain shape or there's really nothing you can do? It's just, you know, they're a... <clears throat> 
they're taking the position of something that it was either there or not there, and you're going to have this kind of reaction no matter what you do? No, uh, there's a few different things we can do. Um, for example, one thing that uh, we uh, started, for example, my grad school work, what we were doing is that we started manipulating the surface of these implants. So we created uh, nanobiomaterials, so biomaterials with surface nanoarchitecture. Uh, so imagine um, a cell sitting on a flat and smooth surface versus a cell sitting on a bed of nails, nails made of you know, nanoscale uh, uh, architecture. So obviously the cell would behave very differently than it's sitting on a bed of nails versus sitting on a smooth, flat surface. And this is basically a tool that we can use to manipulate the cell behavior locally. So the way the cell reacts to mechanical forces and other factors can be changed by changing the material surface. So that is one strategy. And the other strategy is now that we realize that it's the mechanical forces that are making the device uh, uh, you know, work differently um, or the rejection process have accelerated, what we can do is look at what we call mechanotransduction uh, molecules. These are basically you know, genes and proteins in the cells which are sensitive to mechanical forces. Um, for example, in wound healing, uh, we've looked at focal adhesion kinase. It's a protein that is involved that uh, transduces mechanical signals into fibrotic processes and fibroblasts. And then if we target these mechanotransduction pathways, then we're basically cutting off the signaling between the mechanical force and the uh, end result of scar production. So we want to take some, that kind of an approach with biomedical implants too. Um, uh, once we prove that it is a mechanical force, which we have uh, quite a bit of evidence now, um, uh, that's making the accelerated rejection process happen, if we can now target drugs that can inhibit or attenuate the mechanotransduction process in the local environment, then that's the way we can get around uh, the, the process. How long, uh, what's considered fast rejection versus normal rejection? You know, how long, do, I know, it, I'm sure it depends on the implant, but on average, you know, for a pacemaker or other types of implants, how long does it take for rejection to happen if it's normal versus accelerated? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. And uh, there is a lot of um, sort of variability in the studies too. Uh, and that's another reason why it's complicated. So let's start with biosensors. That's the most sort of acute kind of rejection. Again, as I said, the commercial in vivo continuous, you know, glucose monitoring devices the average lifetime is two weeks to, let's say, a maximum of two months or so. Uh, with breast implants, it can last up to seven years. Um, uh, with pacemakers, again, there's a lot of variability. Technically, the battery might last uh, until 15 years. But let's say you have to change the battery. The other problem is because of the foreign body reaction, when you have to remove the implant, um, the implant is stuck to all the scar tissue that has formed around it. So removal of the implant itself um, uh, poses some uh, some risks that are associated with the process. So the same implant in different patients also leads to different kind of reactions, which we don't understand why that happens. Again, there's a lot of variability there as well. So there is no fixed um, timeline for every device. Obviously, there are average lifespans, uh, and depending on you know if it's a passive implant. Um, that is a mechanical support, uh, that lifetime is a little bit better. Uh, but if it's an implant, like an active implant, like a biosensor, uh, the lifetime is very, very low. And in, uh, obviously, regardless of the actual lifetime, our goal is to be able to 
increase the lifespan of these devices um, across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what have you discovered with altering the surface material of implants? You know, what, what seems to uh, prolong the rejection and why is your guess? Yeah, um, so what we've done is, um, again, I've looked at a few different things. Uh, so the one thing I've done is collected these implants from, you know, different departments of surgery. So I've collected pacemakers, uh, breast implants, um, chest batteries that are used for deep brain stimulation, uh, and so on. And looking at these cells, we are arriving at certain kinds of mechanotransduction pathways that are upregulated specific pathways. So that is one sort of way we can go down to figuring this out. Another uh, evidence is that in mice, we are able to recreate, uh, sort of better recapitulate what happens in humans when we apply a lot of mechanical force, human levels of mechanical force in the mouse implant. So all this evidence is pointing towards the fact that mechanical stimulation of these implants is accelerating uh, the rejection process. And uh, what we are trying to do is one, understand how that happens. Second, identify the specific subgroups of cells and mechanotransduction pathways that are involved in this process. And the second step, uh, which we are yet to get to, is uh, you know basically devising uh, drug delivery therapies that would target these specific pathways and so on. But do you find, again, to refer to an earlier question, when do do you find examples in the body? of naturally occurring stuff like a bone spur or, again, torn cartilage that simulates mm -hmm. what happens to an implanted device? Is there anything in our body that happens naturally or unnaturally that um, causes this mechanical wear and tear that causes scarification or, you know, fibroblasts to cover a certain part of our body that's not an implant? Uh, yeah. So that, I would say, is uh, wound repair, for example. Um, so whenever we get a deep wound, like a surgical scar, for example, uh, or when the surgical wound heals, sometimes it leads to a scar. There is uh, pathologies such as hypertrophic scars, uh, keloids. So these are basically big scarring uh, diseases. And these scars involve, you know, many of the same processes like um, inf inflammation and fibrotic processes, fibroblasts and such. And uh, we know that um, these process, this scar formation is also activated by mechanical force. So that was what the work of Dr. Jeff Gertner was, um, uh, which inspired me to come here to Stanford. Because a lot of the same cells and same uh, mechanotransduction pathways that are involved in wound healing are also involved in biomedical device rejection. So now we're testing those concepts in the context of biomedical device uh, because, you know, when you implant a biomedical device, you're basically creating a wound and then you're placing a biomedical device. So it is basically wound healing with the additional problem that there is now a device which is, you know, mechanically very different from the rest of your body. So um, okay. I would say this... Of these cells in the body that attack an implant, you're saying mm -hmm. there's... You didn't realize that there's different types of cells that do it or subsets of cells and there's certain ones that seem to be a lot more active in the Definitely, um, yeah. formation yeah. of fire. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where, are you, where are you headed with that path? Like, have you identified what kinds and why and their method of action? Yeah. So um, uh, this is, you know, uh, work in progress. We haven't published this, but basically we've found certain subsets of macrophages uh, that are really active in this process, which uh, uh, populate the majority of these cells that are found on these capsules. And this we've found across 
different types of implants. So what we're seeing is that, you know, one of the unique things is, again, the fact that all these devices are rejected and all these, uh, or, you know, sooner or later, but all these devices elicit this foreign body reaction um, and regardless of where you implant them. So this gives us a clue that there are some, uh, you know, conserved processes that are common uh, across the foreign body reaction to different types of implants. So what my approach was to basically see what are the common cell types or sub-cell types that are associated with these uh, capsules that are formed around these implants. And we found that a specific subset of macrophages, uh, which, which have some elevated mechanotransduction pathways, are, are really uh, very important. And we're seeing if we can target them uh, to find therapy. Can you talk a little bit more, more about mechanotransduction? What, what's happening? Are these cells sensing that the movement of an implant is, is makes it foreign and they're... I don't quite understand what mechanical transduction means or the implication. No, actually, actually, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's a good question because mechanotransduction is the generic term we use. Mechanotransduction basically means it's the process by which mechanical cues get converted into biological you know, cues. So uh, mechanical cues can be in the form of actual device movement. And people have shown uh, the, uh, there's some evidence to show that when the implanted cell moves a lot, uh, there is, uh, you know, accelerated rejection. Uh, there is also mechanical cues in the form of mechanical mismatch. You can imagine a pacemaker has very different mechanical, for example, stiffness than the surrounding tissue, right? So when there is a mechanical mismatch between uh, the implant and the surrounding tissue, that, again, causes a, an adverse reaction. And there is also force itself, you know, the tension of the skin, the, the force which the implant is under uh, when these, uh, these implants are put inside uh, of the human body. So the force is obviously sensed by the cells. So mechanical cues in the form of force, device movement, as well as mechanical mismatch, all these can translate into adverse um, uh, reactions in the body. So by targeting mechanotransduction pathways, in some ways, uh, if we get to a central mechanotransduction pathway, uh, we can sort of target all these mechanical cues at once. Does that clarify? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where do you think the big win is going to be? Is it going to be in the surface chemistry or the surface, uh, the surface science of implants, or is it going to be in altering their shape, or is it going to be in targeting or suppressing certain immune cells or macrophages so that they don't attack the implant? What do you think that the win will be? That is, again, a very good question. Um, so I did my grad school work on, you know, changing not surface chemistry, but surface uh, nanoarchitecture. Uh, and that showed some good results. We were able to come up with certain nanoscale geometries of materials that would reduce foreign body reaction in the, in the animals, of course. Um, and now I'm trying it from a different angle. Uh, here, this is a clinical research program, so we get to work with these human samples. I think, uh, and you know, we're getting at different subsets of macrophages and fibroblasts that are really driving this process. So I think the real answer is going to be a combination of things. I mean, bioengineering as a field itself is very interdisciplinary. As you might know, uh, people come into bioengineering uh, with different kinds of background. You can study material science and then come into bioengineering. You can study you know, basic biology. You can study genetic engineering. Uh, you can study all these different kinds of sciences and come into bioengineering. And I think the final answer is going to be a combination of different things. Maybe it'll be design of different devices which can 
you know, withstand more mechanical forces or distribute the mechanical forces. In addition, it'll be uh, surface manipulation in terms of nanoarchitecture. And on top of that, it'll be, you know, drugs targeted at mechanotransduction pathways. So I think it's going to be a combination of all these different things, which is why, again, we need um, different kinds of scientists working on this problem. That makes sense. Any other uh, things that happen in the body naturally that cause mechanical stressors? I mean, what about, like, you know, substantial weight gain or uh, losing a limb? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think these are good hypotheses. Um, now, do we know if, you know, there's a correlation between obesity and biomedical device rejection? Or if we, do we know if there is a significant correlation between um, aging or other kinds of diseases and biomedical device rejection? These are actually very good questions, and we are just about starting to answer these questions. And this is actually where data science comes in. Um, we just about started this collaboration um, uh, with Dr. Negrim Shah at Stanford. Uh, so where we're using data science methods to screen um, many medical device records uh, and also look at the you know, genetic, genetic and proteomics data that we're getting from uh, our research to combine these and see what are the other risk factors that are associated uh, with accelerated biomedical device rejection. And these are questions that we're beginning to answer. So I would say these are all possibilities, um, but we don't know them for sure. Uh, but now, I think over the next five, 10 years, we're going to have answers because the tools are ready to answer these questions. What do you see when you, you know, I imagine like your lab in your room, you have like a, a big pile of pacemakers, so like, a, you know, all kinds of devices, like a big junkyard in your room. I'm sure it's not like that, but, but what do you see when you get these devices after they've been taken out of somebody? Are you really surprised at how they look? Do they look mostly the same? Are they covered in thin films? Are they like completely crusted over like a, like a coral in the ocean or what do they look like? Um, again, every device is different. Um, the, so the way the process works is that first, um, you know, uh, I go and talk to the patient and ask for their consent if they are okay with it. And if they are okay with us collecting the implant, because, you know, when these implants are taken out, they are basically dumped. And I take it instead of putting in the dumpster. I ask them if I can take it for research. And uh, if they're okay with it, then, um, you know, after the surgery, I collect the implants. And when I come, I basically get the implant and the little bit of tissue that's attached to the implant. Usually, um, you know, it's a little bit bloody because of the surgery. Uh, but once the blood is washed off, the capsule itself is like this translucent um, white capsule uh, that's on the implant. And that capsule is, you know, mostly protein, mostly collagen one, actually. And uh, it's got obviously all these cells, macrophages and fibroblasts inside of the capsule and on surface of the implant. Um, so every implant looks a little different. Um, but what we try to do is then we take the capsule itself, um, you know, digest it, take the cells out, and then, you know, do what is known as single cell sequencing. So we basically sequence every cell that is there and get the sequence, so the genetic information in every cell and see, you know, what genes are activated. And then we also look at the surface of the implant itself uh, under like scanning electron microscopy, for example. And there we can see a few different things. One, obviously we can see uh, the surface covered with the capsule, so collagen fibers are very nicely visible. And another peculiar thing that we observe is uh, the formation of what we know as foreign body giant cells. 
So these are macrophages that fuse to form foreign body giant cells. And the presence of foreign body giant cells on implants, again, we've observed in mice and humans as well, uh, is a sign that, you know, the rejection process is underway. You said that what, what kind of giant cells are created? Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the peculiar things that, uh, you know, macrophages are involved in a variety of processes, uh, any inflammatory process, any wound, uh, there'll be macrophages involved. But one of the unique things that macrophages do in the context of biomedical implants is that they start fusing with each other. And uh, they fuse to form what we call foreign body giant cells. So basically, these are giant cells mm. that are formed when there's a foreign body there. And these are basically, you know, multinucleated uh, macrophages that are pretty big. And uh, these giant cells, uh, they produce, um, you know, biochemicals such as cytokines and chemokines. Um, uh, that, again, they invite more fibroblasts, accelerate the rejection process, and so on. So they, are, uh, uh, they assist in the inflammatory process, and they also release uh, biochemicals that attract more fibroblasts to come in. We know that foreign body giant cells are formed in some other chronic inflammatory diseases, uh, but most often they're found in the context of biomedical implants. So this is a very unique thing where, you know, when there's an implant, uh, the macrophages start fusing and forming these giant cells. Uh, now, why exactly the fusion process happens is still a matter of debate. Um, we still are trying to understand, you know, what is it about these macrophages, uh, what is it about these implants that starts the fusion process? And what is the exact role of these fused cells in the rejection process? Uh, obviously, we have some ideas. Well, I figured why like, uh, like, a, like a self-assembling brick wall, they're probably more effective when they're all together in larger numbers, they could form a superstructure that's bigger than their individual cells. And that, that accomplishes their mission, right, of, of isolating the implant from the rest of the body. That's my guess. But. To some extent, yes. For example, so, uh, so macrophages do this thing where uh, it's called phagocytosis, where they, you know, there's a piece of bacteria or some other pathogen uh, that needs to you know, be gotten rid of the macrophages can basically eat them up, right? Um, so when people started finding, um, uh, you know, these giant cells on biomedical devices, the initial hypothesis was that this is a frustrated phagocytosis. So since they're not able to engulf the biomedical implant that's bigger, maybe they're trying to fuse to get bigger and then they will uh, sort of engulf uh, the whole implant. But that hypothesis was, was disproven uh, when people showed that, uh, you know, phagocytosis and fusion are actually different processes. Um, another uh, hypothesis is that it's like a defense mechanism against apoptosis. Uh, apoptosis is, you know, cell death, automatic cell death. Um, so, uh, it's it, because the cells are exposed to such different mechanical environments uh, that they, you know, want to apoptose. And one of the defense mechanisms is, as you said, they would create a more potent cell by fusing and uh, becoming more potent. Uh, that is, again, a hypothesis that's not been proven to the full. One interesting fact that I would say, though, in my grad school research, what we found is that if we create, uh, you know, 55 nanometer nanorod arrays, um, we can actually stop this fusion process from happening. Uh, the, the cell macrophages don't fuse very well when there are certain nanoarchitectures on the surface. So um, uh, why exactly does it happen? It's still a work in progress, but we know that it's very much involved in the foreign body reaction, and we know that to stop it is a good thing. Uh, but 
again, I think more research is needed to gain more clarity on it. The actual isolation of the device happens by the capsule that's formed. So the macrophages come in, they release, you know, chemokines and cytokines that can activate other cells as well as damage the implant if it's made of polymers and such. Uh, and then the fibroblasts come in and fibroblasts can produce a lot of collagen and other proteins. And then the final isolation that happens is because of this encapsulation layer, this proteinaceous encapsulation that happens. And that protein layer is what surrounds the implant and isolates it from the body. What happens once you get a complete capsule? Does the body stop and say, ah, we're done, we did our job, or does it keep going? Uh, that's, no, no, that's a very good question. Yeah, the, for the body, it's a different mechanism, right? Um, so uh, if it's, you know, it's, it's a way to keep it inside of a, of a capsule, and that way the body now only sees collagen, which is its own protein, and doesn't bother it. Obviously, this is a very ideal situation, because even if there is capsule, there might be some release of some particulate matter from the implant and such. Uh, you know, in some cases, I've read that uh, when there is a bullet, for example, inside of the human body, and uh, sometimes people, uh, and if there is a nice capsule that is formed, um, sometimes people decide to leave it alone rather than go and operate and take it outside if it's like a reaction that has stopped after the capsule formation. But in many times, even after the capsule formation, the things could get triggered again, or if the capsule breaks loose and such. Yeah, because I guess if you if you were able to create an implant with a surface that attracted, uh, you know, collagen like crazy really quickly, uh, maybe it would get to a stable state and, you know, the body would stop attacking it. But it would be constructed in such a way that it would, you know, maybe you can minif minimize the surface area of the implant that would be subject to attack very quickly by, you know, again, growing collagen on top of it initially before it's implanted or, you know, having it happen quickly and then maybe only a small area would be attacked and it may slow the rejection of it. Uh, yeah, uh, coatings of different kinds are actually, uh, you know, one of the ways people are trying to uh, alter foreign body reaction and it's shown some uh, good results. But the one issue is it depends on the application. For example, if you're building a biosensor, um, that needs access to your interstitial fluid or to your blood, even a little bit of capsule, uh, which stabilizes this uh, process, is going to give you wrong readings. Because you can imagine if the device has to access interstitial fluid through nothing versus through a layer of protein, uh, there's going to be you know, much less signal coming. So you're going to get lower readings, even though your glucose may be higher. So in those cases, it is not. But there are certain cases in which, you know, uh, in breast implants, a small layer of these capsules can actually help stabilize the implant. But again, it depends on, uh, you know, what the specific application is and how well you can control uh, this reaction. One of the, one of the sort of uh, key areas of thinking is that it's immunomodulation that we're going after, not immunosuppression. So you don't want to stop the process completely, but you want it to get to a stable state where the implant can still serve its function uh, and at the same time not elicit more and more of this reaction as we go forward. Makes sense. Okay. So how far away is your research from being able to uh, being used in implants and in implant situations? Is it Are you just really on the, um, the hardcore research side of it or are you... Are you working towards a product solution? Uh, you know, one of the reasons uh, why I came to Stanford and also the Department of Surgery with Jeff Gertner uh, from a bioengineering background was because of this ability um, to translate things from the basic science to the clinical science. 
Um, so, uh, you know, we, uh, the research that we're doing is, of course, based on animals, but also these human implants that I talked about. So once we have this and we can develop some drugs and uh, we can show that it works in mice, um, uh, we can, you know, go for large animal models and start translating them. So currently it is still at the research level. Uh, but I think once the technology works, the, the sort of process to translate this into humans is, uh, is you know, within a few years. And uh, we have the expertise here. And Dr. Jeff Gertner, you know, specializes in translating some of these technologies uh, to the clinic. He's done uh, some of this work with wound repair technologies. Um, and uh, I believe we can do the same with uh, biomedical devices as well. It's uh, just a matter of finishing the research and doing the due diligence before we start uh, thinking of translating it. Yeah. All right, well, that's great. Jagan, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, if, if people are interested in getting in touch, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, the best way is my email. It's uh, jaganpa at Stanford, J-A-G-A-N-P-A at stanford.edu. Um, I also run a blog called sciencers.org. Um, which people can reach out to me. Um, yeah, I think those two would be the best ways to reach out to me. Very good. Well, Jagan, thanks for coming on. And it's uh, very interesting work that you're working on. Oh, thank you very much. Just uh, one more thing, Richard. Yeah, it's the, uh, you asked me the average lifespan of devices and for breast implants, I think I said seven years. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about, the average answer is about 10 years. So, okay, so like a breast it. implant will last how long in the body on average? The average is about 10 years, but of course, there's less and more depending on. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.